What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 1 of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From Household Words, a weekly journal. Saturday, April 1st, 1854. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Chapter 1. Now, what I want is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else and root out everything else. You can only form the minds of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. This is the principle on which I bring up my own children, and this is the principle on which I bring up these children. Stick to facts, sir. The scene was a plain, bare, monotonous vault of a schoolroom, and the speaker's square forefinger emphasised his observations by underscoring every sentence with a line on the schoolmaster's sleeve. The emphasis was helped by the speaker's square wall of a forehead, which had its eyebrows for its base, while his eyes found commodious cellarage in two dark caves, overshadowed by the wall. The emphasis was helped by the speaker's mouth, which was wide, thin and hard set. The emphasis was helped by the speaker's voice, which was inflexible, dry, and dictatorial. The emphasis was helped by the speaker's hair, which bristled on the skirts of his bald head, plantation of furs to keep the wind from its shining surface, all covered with knobs like the crust of a plum pie, as if the head had scarcely warehouse room for the hard facts stored inside. The speaker's obstinate carriage, square coat, square legs, square shoulders, nay, his very neckcloth, trained to take him by the throat with an unaccommodating grasp, like a stubborn fact as it was, all helped the emphasis. In this life we want nothing but facts, sir, nothing but facts. The speaker and the schoolmaster, and the third grown person present, all backed a little, and swept with their eyes the inclined plane of little vessels, then and there arranged in order ready to have imperial gallons of facts poured into them until they were full to the brim. Chapter 2 Thomas Gradgrind, sir, a man of realities, a man of facts and calculations, a man who proceeds upon the principle that two and two are four and nothing over, and who is not to be talked into allowing for anything over. Thomas Gradgrind, sir, peremptorily Thomas, Thomas Gradgrind, with a rule and a pair of scales and the multiplication table always in his pocket, sir, ready to weigh and measure any parcel of human nature and tell you exactly what it comes to. 
it is a mere question of figures a case of simple arithmetic you might hope to get some other nonsensical belief into the head of george gradgrind or augustus gradgrind or john gradgrind or joseph gradgrind all suppositious non-existent persons but into the head of thomas gradgrind no sir in such terms mr gradgrind always mentally introduced himself whether to his private circle of acquaintance or to the public in general in such terms no doubt substituting the words boys and girls for sir thomas gradgrind now presented thomas gradgrind to the little pictures before him who were to be filled so full of facts indeed as he eagerly sparkled at them from the cellarage before mentioned he seemed a kind of cannon loaded to the muzzle with facts and prepared to blow them clean out of the regions of childhood at one discharge he seemed a galvanizing apparatus too charged with a grim mechanical substitute for the tender young imaginations that were to be stormed away girl number twenty said mr gradgrind squarely pointing with his square forefinger i don't know that girl who is that girl sissy jupe sir explained number twenty blushing standing up and curtsying sissy is not a name said mr gradgrind don't call yourself sissy call yourself cecilia it's father as calls me sissy sir returned the young girl in a trembling voice and with another curtsy then he has no business to do it said mr gradgrind tell him he mustn't cecilia jupe cecilia jupe let me see what is your father he belongs to the horse-riding if you please sir mr gradgrind frowned and waved off the objectionable calling with his hand we don't want to know anything about that here you mustn't tell us about that here your father breaks horses don't he if you please sir when they can get any to break they do break horses in the ring sir you mustn't tell us about the ring here very well then describe your father as a horse-breaker he doctors sick horses i dare say oh yes sir very well then he is a veterinary surgeon a farrier and a horse-breaker give me a definition of a horse sissy jupe thrown into the greatest alarm by this demand girl number twenty unable to define a horse said mr gradgrind for the general behoof of all the little pictures girl number twenty possessed of no facts in reference to one of the commonest of animals some boy's definition of a horse bitzer yours the square finger moving here and there lighted suddenly on bitzer perhaps because he chanced to sit in the same ray of sunlight which darting in at one of the bare windows of the intensely whitewashed room irradiated sissy for the boys and girls sat on the face of the inclined plane in two compact bodies divided up the centre by a narrow interval and sissy being at the corner of a row on the sunny side came in for the beginning of a sunbeam of which bitzer being at the corner of a row on the other side a few rows in advance caught the end but whereas the girl was so dark-eyed and dark-haired that she seemed to receive a deeper and more lustrous colour from the sun when it shone upon her the boy was so light-eyed and light-haired that the self-same rays appeared to draw out of him what little colour he ever possessed his cold eyes would hardly have been eyes but for the short ends of lashes which by bringing them into immediate contrast with something paler than themselves expressed their form 
his short cropped hair might have been a mere continuation of the sandy freckles on his forehead and face his skin was so unwholesomely deficient in the natural tinge that he looked as though if he were cut he would bleed white bitzer said thomas gradgrind your definition of a horse quadruped graminivorous forty teeth namely twenty-four grinders four eye-teeth and twelve incisive sheds coat in the spring in marshy countries sheds hoofs too hoofs hard but requiring to be shod with iron age known by marks in the mouth thus and much more bitzer now girl number twenty said mr gradgrind you know what a horse is she curtsied again and would have blushed deeper if she could have blushed deeper than she had blushed all this time bitzer after rapidly blinking at thomas gradgrind with both eyes at once and so catching the light upon his quivering ends of lashes that they looked like the antennae of busy insects put his knuckles to his freckled forehead and sat down again the third gentleman now stepped forth a mighty man at cutting and drying he was a government officer in his way and in most other people's too a professed pugilist always in training always with a system to force down the general throat like a bolus always to be heard at the bar of his little public office ready to fight all england to continue in fistic phraseology he had a genius for coming up to the scratch wherever and whatever it was and proving himself an ugly customer he would go in and damage any subject whatever with his right follow up with his left stop exchange counter bore his opponent he always fought all england to the ropes and fall upon him neatly he was certain to knock the wind out of common sense and render that unlucky adversary deaf to the call of time and he had it in charge from high authority to bring about the great public office millennium when commissioners should reign upon earth very well said this gentleman briskly smiling and folding his arms that's a horse now let me ask you girls and boys would you pay for a room with representations of horses after a pause one half of the children cried in chorus yes sir upon which the other half seeing in the gentleman's face that yes was wrong cried out in chorus no sir as the custom is in these examinations of course no why wouldn't you a pause one corpulent slow boy with a wheezy manner of breathing ventured the answer because he wouldn't paper a room at all but would paint it you must paper it said the gentleman rather warmly you must paper it said thomas gradgrind whether you like it or not don't tell us you wouldn't paper it what do you mean boy i'll explain to you then said the gentleman after another and a dismal pause why you wouldn't paper a room with representations of horses do you ever see horses walking up and down the sides of rooms in reality in fact do you yes sir from one half no sir from the other of course no said the gentleman with an indignant look at the wrong half why then you are not to see anywhere what you don't see in fact you are not to have anywhere what you don't have in fact what is called taste is only another name for fact 
Thomas Gradgrind nodded his approbation. This is a new principle, a discovery, a great discovery, said the gentleman. Now, I'll try you again. Suppose you were going to carpet a room. Would you use a carpet having a representation of flowers upon it? There being a general conviction by this time that no, sir, was always the right answer to this gentleman. The chorus of no was very strong. Only a few feeble stragglers said yes. Among them, Sissy Jupe. Girl number twenty, said the gentleman, smiling in the calm strength of knowledge. Sissy blushed and stood up. So you would carpet your room, or your husband's room, if you were a grown woman and had a husband, with representations of flowers, would you? said the gentleman. Why would you? If you please, sir, I'm very fond of flowers, returned the girl. And is that why you would put tables and chairs upon them, and have people walking over them with heavy boots? It wouldn't hurt them, sir. They wouldn't crush and wither, if you please, sir. They would be the pictures of what was very pretty and pleasant, and I would fancy. Aye, 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 but you mustn't fancy, cried the gentleman, quite elated by coming so happily to his point. That's it. You are never to fancy. You are not, Mary Jupe, Thomas Gradgrind solemnly repeated, to do anything of that kind. Fact, 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 said the gentleman, and fact, 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 repeated Thomas Gradgrind. You are to be in all things regulated and governed, said the gentleman, by fact. We hope to have before long a board of fact, composed of commissioners of fact, who will force the people to be a people of fact, and of nothing but fact. You must discard the word fancy altogether. You have nothing to do with it. You are not to have, in any object of use or ornament, what would be a contradiction in fact. You don't walk upon flowers in fact. You cannot be allowed to walk upon flowers in carpets. You don't find that foreign birds and butterflies come and perch upon your crockery. You cannot be permitted to paint foreign birds and butterflies upon your crockery. You never meet with quadrupeds going up and down walls. You must not have quadrupeds represented upon walls. You must use, said the gentleman, for all these purposes, combinations and modifications in primary colours of mathematical figures which are susceptible of proof and demonstration. This is the new discovery. This is fact. This is taste. The girl curtsied and sat down. She was very young, and she looked as if she were frightened by the matter-of-fact prospects the world afforded. Now, if Mr. Machokum, child, said the gentleman, will proceed to give his first lesson here, Mr. Gradgrind, I shall be happy, at your request, to observe his mode of procedure. Mr. Gradgrind was much obliged. Mr. Machokum, child, we only wait for you. So Mr. Machokum, child, began, in his best manner. He and some 140 other schoolmasters had been lately turned at the same time, in the same factory, on the same principles, like so many pianoforte legs. He had been put through an immense variety of paces, and had answered volumes of head-breaking questions. Orthography, etymology, syntax and prosody 
biography astronomy geography and general cosmography the sciences of compound proportion algebra land surveying and levelling vocal music and drawing from models were all at the ends of his ten chilled fingers he had worked his stony way into her majesty's most honourable privy council schedule b and had taken the bloom off the higher branches of mathematics and physical science french german latin and greek he knew about all the watersheds of all the world whatever they are and all the histories of all the peoples and all the names of all the rivers and mountains and all the productions manners and customs of all the countries and all their boundaries and bearings on the two-and-thirty points of the compass ah rather overdone machokum child if he had only learnt a little less how infinitely better he might have taught much more he went to work in this preparatory lesson not unlike morgiana in the forty thieves looking into all the vessels ranged before him one after another to see what they contained say good machokum child when from thy boiling store thou shalt fill each jar brim full by and by dost thou think that thou wilt always kill outright the robber fancy lurking within or sometimes only maim him and distort him chapter three mr gradgrind walked homeward from the school in a state of considerable satisfaction it was his school and he intended it to be a model he intended every child in it to be a model just as the young gradgrinds were all models there were five young gradgrinds and they were models every one they had been lectured at from their tenderest years coursed like little hares almost as soon as they could run alone they had been made to run to the lecture room the first object with which they had an association or of which they had a remembrance was a large blackboard with a dry ogre chalking ghastly white figures on it not that they knew by name or nature anything about an ogre fact forbid i only use the word to express a monster in a lecturing castle with heaven knows how many heads manipulated into one taking childhood captive and dragging it into gloomy statistical dens by the hair no little gradgrind had ever seen a face in the moon it was up in the moon before it could speak distinctly no little gradgrind had ever learnt the silly jingle twinkle twinkle little star how i wonder what you are it had never known wonder on the subject having at five years old dissected the great bear like a professor owen and driven charles's wain like a locomotive engine driver no little gradgrind had ever associated a cow in a field with that famous cow with the crumpled horn who tossed the dog who worried the cat who killed the rat who ate the malt or with that yet more famous cow who swallowed tom thumb it had never heard of these celebrities and had only been introduced to a cow as a graminivorous ruminating quadruped with several stomachs to his matter-of-fact home which was called stone lodge mr gradgrind directed his steps he had virtually retired from the wholesale hardware trade before he built stone lodge and was now looking about for a suitable opportunity of making an arithmetical figure in parliament stone lodge was situated on a moor within a mile or two of a great town called coketown in the present faithful guide-book a very regular feature on the face of the country stone lodge was 
not the least disguise toned down or shaded off that uncompromising fact in the landscape a great square house with a heavy portico darkening the principal windows as its master's heavy brows overshadowed his eyes a calculated cast up balanced and proved house six windows on this side of the door six on that side a total of twelve in this wing a total of twelve in the other wing four and twenty carried over to the back a lawn and a garden and an infant avenue all ruled straight like a botanical account book gas and ventilation drainage and water service all of the primest quality iron clamps and girders fireproof from top to bottom mechanical lifts for the housemaids with all their brushes and brooms everything that heart could desire everything well i suppose so the little gradgrinds had cabinets in various departments of science too they had a little conchological cabinet and a little metallurgical cabinet and a little mineralogical cabinet and the specimens were all arranged and labelled and the bits of stone and ore looked as though they might have been broken from the parent substances by those tremendously hard instruments their own names and to paraphrase the idle legend of peter piper who had never found his way into their nursery if the greedy little gradgrinds grasped at more than this what was it for good gracious goodness sake that the greedy little gradgrinds grasped at their father walked on in a hopeful and satisfied frame of mind he was an affectionate father after his manner but he would probably have described himself if he had been put like sissy jupe upon a definition as an eminently practical father he had a particular pride in the phrase eminently practical which was considered to have a special application to him whatsoever the public meeting held in coketown and whatsoever the subject of such meeting some coketowner was sure to seize the occasion of alluding to his eminently practical friend gradgrind this always pleased the eminently practical friend he knew it to be his due but his due was acceptable he had reached the neutral ground upon the outskirts of the town which was neither town nor country and yet was either spoiled when his ears were invaded by the sound of music the clashing and banging band attached to the horse-riding establishment which had there set up its rest in a wooden pavilion was in full bray a flag floating from the summit of the temple proclaimed to mankind that it was Sleary's horse-riding which claimed their suffrages. Sleary himself, a stout modern statue with a money-box at its elbow, in an ecclesiastical niche of early Gothic architecture, took the money. Miss Josephine Sleary, as some very long and narrow strips of printed bill announced, was then inaugurating the entertainments with her graceful equestrian Tyrolean flower act. Among the other pleasing but always strictly moral wonders which must be seen to be believed, Signor Jupe was that afternoon to elucidate the diverting accomplishments of his highly trained performing dog Merrylegs. He was also to exhibit his astounding feat of throwing seventy-five hundredweight in rapid succession, backhanded over his head, thus forming a fountain of solid iron in mid-air a feat never before attempted in this or any other country and which having elicited such rapturous plaudits from enthusiastic throngs it cannot be withdrawn the same signor jupe 
was to enliven the varied performances at frequent intervals with his chaste shakespearean quips and retorts lastly he was to wind them up by appearing in his favourite character of mr william button of tooley street in the highly novel and laughable hippocomedietta of the tailor's journey to brentford thomas gradgrind took no heed of these trivialities of course but passed on as a practical man ought to pass on either brushing the noisy insects from his thoughts or consigning them to the house of correction but the turning of the road took him by the back of the booth and at the back of the booth a number of children were congregated in a number of stealthy attitudes striving to peep in at the hidden glories of the place this brought him to a stop now to think of these vagabonds said he attracting the young rabble from a model school a space of stunted grass and dry rubbish being between him and the young rabble he took his eyeglass out of his waistcoat to look for any other child he knew by name and might order off phenomenon almost incredible though distinctly seen what did he then behold but his own metallurgical louisa peeping with all her might through a hole in a deal board and his own mathematical thomas abasing himself on the ground to catch but a hoof of the graceful equestrian tyrolean flower act dumb with amazement mr gradgrind crossed to the spot where his family was thus disgraced laid his hand upon each erring child and said louisa thomas both rose red and disconcerted but louisa looked at her father with more boldness than thomas did indeed thomas did not look at him but gave himself up to be taken home like a machine in the name of wonder idleness and folly said mr gradgrind leading each away by a hand what do you do here wanted to see what it was like returned louisa shortly what it was like yes father there was an air of jaded sullenness in them both and particularly in the girl yet struggling through the dissatisfaction of her face there was a light with nothing to rest upon a fire with nothing to burn a starved imagination keeping life in itself somehow which brightened its expression not with the brightness natural to cheerful youth but with uncertain eager doubtful flashes which had something painful in them analogous to the changes on a blind face groping its way she was a child now of fifteen or sixteen but at no distant day would seem to become a woman all at once her father thought so as he looked at her she was pretty would have been self-willed he thought in his eminently practical way but for her bringing up thomas though i have the fact before me i find it difficult to believe that you with your education and resources should have brought your sister to a scene like this i brought him father said louisa quickly i asked him to come i'm sorry to hear it i'm very sorry indeed to hear it it makes thomas no better and it makes you worse louisa she looked at her father again but no tear fell down her cheek you thomas and you to whom the circle of the sciences is open thomas and you who may be said to be replete with facts thomas and you who have been trained to mathematical exactness thomas and you here cried mr gradgrind in this degraded position i am amazed 
I was tired, father. I've been tired a long time, said Louisa. Tired? Of what? asked the astonished father. I don't know of what. Of everything, I think. Say not another word, returned Mr. Gradgrind. You are childish. I will hear no more. He did not speak again until they had walked some half a mile in silence, when he gravely broke out with, What would your best friend say, Louisa? Do you attach no value to their good opinion? What would Mr. Bounderby say? At the mention of this name, his daughter stole a look at him, remarkable for its intense and searching character. He saw nothing of it, for before he looked at her, she had again cast down her eyes. What, he repeated presently, would Mr. Bounderby say? All the way to Stone Lodge, as with grave indignation he led the two delinquents home, he repeated at intervals, What would Mr. Bounderby say? As if Mr. Bounderby had been Mrs. Grundy. End of part one. Part two of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal. Saturday, April the 8th, 1854. Chapter 4. Not being Mrs. Grundy, who was Mr. Bounderby? Why, Mr. Bounderby was as near being Mr. Gradgrind's bosom friend as a man perfectly devoid of sentiment can approach that spiritual relationship towards another man perfectly devoid of sentiment. So near was Mr. Bounderby, or, if the reader should prefer it, so far off. He was a rich man, banker, merchant, manufacturer and what not. A big, loud man, with a stare and a metallic laugh. A man made out of a coarse material, which seemed to have been stretched to make so much of him. A man with a great puffed head and forehead, swelled veins in his temples, and such a strained skin to his face that it seemed to hold his eyes open and lift his eyebrows up. A man with a pervading appearance on him of being inflated like a balloon and ready to start. A man who could never sufficiently vaunt himself a self-made man. A man who was always proclaiming, through that brassy speaking trumpet of a voice of his, his old ignorance and his old poverty. A man who was the bully of humility. A year or two younger than his eminently practical friend, Mr. Bounderby looked older. His seven or eight and forty might have had the seven or eight added to it again, without surprising anybody. He had not much hair, one might have fancied he had talked it off, and that what was left, all standing up in disorder, was in that condition from being constantly blown about by his windy boastfulness. In the formal drawing-room of Stone Lodge, standing on the hearth-rug, warming himself before the fire, Mr. Bounderby delivered some observations to Mrs. Gradgrind on the circumstance of its being his birthday. He stood before the fire, partly because it was a cool spring afternoon, though the sun shone, partly because the shade of Stone Lodge was always haunted by the ghost of damp mortar, partly because he thus took up a commanding position from which to subdue Mrs. Gradgrind. I hadn't a shoe to my foot. As to a stocking, I didn't know such a thing by name. I passed the day in a ditch and the night in a pigsty. That's the way I spent my tenth birthday. 
not that a ditch was new to me for i was born in a ditch mrs gradgrind a little thin white pink-eyed bundle of shawls of surpassing feebleness mental and bodily who was always taking physic without any effect and who whenever she showed a symptom of coming to life was invariably stunned by some weighty piece of fact tumbling on her mrs gradgrind hoped it was a dry ditch no as wet as a sop a foot of water in it said mr bounderby enough to give a baby cold mrs gradgrind considered cold i was born with inflammation of the lungs and of everything else i believe that was capable of inflammation returned mr bounderby for years ma'am i was one of the most miserable little wretches ever seen i was so sickly that i was always moaning and groaning i was so ragged and dirty that you wouldn't have touched me with a pair of tongs mrs gradgrind faintly looked at the tongs as the most appropriate thing her imbecility could think of doing how i fought through it i don't know said bounderby i was determined i suppose i've been a determined character in later life and i suppose i was then here i am mrs gradgrind anyhow and nobody to thank for my being here but myself mrs gradgrind meekly and weakly hoped that his mother my mother bolted ma'am said bounderby mrs gradgrind stunned as usual collapsed and gave it up my mother left me to my grandmother said bounderby and according to the best of my remembrance my grandmother was the wickedest and the worst old woman that ever lived if i got a little pair of shoes by any chance she would take em off and sell em for drink why i've known that grandmother of mine lie in her bed and drink her fourteen glasses of liquor before breakfast mrs gradgrind weakly smiling and giving no other sign of vitality looked as she always did like an indifferently executed transparency of a small female figure without enough light behind it she kept a chandler's shop pursued bounderby and kept me in an egg-box that was the cot of my infancy an old egg-box as soon as i was big enough to run away of course i ran away then i became a young vagabond and instead of one old woman knocking me about and starving me everybody of all ages knocked me about and starved me they were right they had no business to do anything else i was a nuisance an encumbrance and a pest i know that very well his pride in having at any time of his life achieved such a great social distinction as to be a nuisance and encumbrance and a pest was only to be satisfied by three sonorous repetitions of the boast i was to pull through it i suppose mrs gradgrind whether i was to do it or not ma'am i did it i pulled through it though nobody threw me out a rope vagabond errand boy vagabond labourer porter clerk chief manager small partner josiah bounderby of coketown those are the antecedents and the culmination josiah bounderby of coketown learnt his letters from the outsides of the shops mrs gradgrind and was first able to tell the time upon a dial plate from studying the steeple clock of st giles's church london under the direction of a drunken cripple who was a convicted thief and an incorrigible vagrant 
tell josiah bounderby of coketown of your district schools and your model schools and your training schools and your whole kettle of fish of schools and josiah bounderby of coketown tells you plainly all right all correct he hadn't such advantages but let us have hard-headed solid-fisted people the education that made him won't do for everybody he knows well such and such his education was however and you may force him to swallow boiling fat but you shall never force him to suppress the facts of his life being heated when he arrived at this climax josiah bounderby of coketown stopped he stopped just as his eminently practical friend still accompanied by the two young culprits entered the room his eminently practical friend on seeing him stopped also and gave louisa a reproachful look that plainly said behold your bounderby well blustered mr bounderby what's the matter what is young thomas in the dumps about he spoke of young thomas but he looked at louisa we were peeping at the circus muttered louisa haughtily without lifting her eyes up and father caught us and mrs gradgrind said her husband in a lofty manner i should have soon have expected to find my children reading poetry dear me whimpered mrs gradgrind how can you louisa and thomas i wonder at you i declare you're enough to make one regret ever having had a family at all i have a great mind to say i wish i hadn't then what would you have done i should like to know mr gradgrind did not seem favourably impressed by these cogent remarks he frowned impatiently as if with my head in its present throbbing state you couldn't go and look at the shells and minerals and things provided for you instead of circuses said mrs gradgrind you know as well as i do no young people have circus masters or keep circuses in cabinets or attend lectures about circuses what can you possibly want to know of circuses then i'm sure you have enough to do if that's what you want with my head in its present state i couldn't remember the mere names of half the facts you've got to attend to that's the reason pouted louisa don't tell me that's the reason because it can be nothing of the sort said mrs gradgrind go and be something illogical directly mrs gradgrind was not a scientific character and usually dismissed her children to their studies with this general injunction to choose their pursuit in truth mrs gradgrind's stock of facts in general was woefully defective but mr gradgrind in raising her to a high matrimonial position had been influenced by two reasons firstly she was most satisfactory as a question of figures and secondly she had no nonsense about her by nonsense he meant fancy and truly it is probable she was as free from any alloy of that nature as any human being not arrived at the perfection of an absolute idiot ever was the simple circumstance of being left alone with her husband and mr bounderby was sufficient to stun this admirable lady again without collision between herself and any other fact so she once more died away and nobody minded her bounderby said mr gradgrind drawing a chair to the fireside you are always so interested in my young people particularly in louisa that i make no apology for saying to you i am very much vexed by this discovery i have systematically devoted myself as you know 
to the education of the reason of my family the reason is as you know the only faculty to which education should be addressed and yet bounderby it would appear from this unexpected circumstance of to-day though in itself a trifling one as if something had crept into thomas's and louisa's minds which is or rather which is not i don't know that i can express myself better than by saying which has never been intended to be developed and in which their reason has no part there certainly is no reason in looking with interest at a parcel of vagabonds returned bounderby but i was a vagabond myself nobody looked with any interest at me i know that then comes the question said the eminently practical father with his eyes on the fire in what has this vulgar curiosity its rise i'll tell you in what in idle imagination i hope not said the eminently practical i confess however that the misgiving has crossed me on my way home in idle imagination gradgrind repeated bounderby a very bad thing for anybody but a cursed bad thing for a girl like louisa i should ask mrs gradgrind's pardon for strong expressions but that she knows very well i'm not a refined character whoever expects refinement in me will be disappointed i hadn't a refined bringing up whether said mr gradgrind pondering with his hands in his pockets and his cavernous eyes on the fire whether any instructor or servant can have suggested anything whether louisa or thomas can have been reading anything whether in spite of all precautions any idle story-book can have got into the house because in minds that have been practically formed by rule and line from the cradle upwards this is so curious so incomprehensible stop a bit cried bounderby who all this time had been standing as before on the hearth bursting at the very furniture of the room with explosive humility you have one of those strollers children in the school cecilia duke by name said mr gradgrind with something of a stricken look at his friend now stop a bit cried bounderby again how did she come there why the fact is i saw the girl myself for the first time only just now she specially applied here at the house to be admitted as not regularly belonging to our town and yes you're right bounderby you're right now stop a bit cried bounderby once more louisa saw her when she came louisa certainly did see her for she mentioned the application to me but louisa saw her i have no doubt in mrs gradgrind's presence pray mrs gradgrind said bounderby what passed oh my poor health returned mrs gradgrind the girl wanted to come to the school and mr gradgrind wanted girls to come to the school and louisa and thomas both said that the girl wanted to come and that mr gradgrind wanted girls to come and how was it possible to contradict em when such was the fact now i tell you what gradgrind said mr bounderby turn this girl to the right about and there's an end of it i'm much of your opinion do it at once said bounderby has always been my motto from a child when i thought i would run away from my egg-box and my grandmother i did it at once do you the same do this at once are you walking asked his friend i have the father's address perhaps you would not mind walking to town with me not the least in the world said mr bounderby as long as you do it at once 
so mr bounderby threw on his hat he always threw it on as expressing a man who had been far too busily employed in making himself to acquire any fashion of wearing his hat and with his hands in his pockets sauntered out into the hall i never wear gloves it was his custom to say i didn't climb up the ladder in them shouldn't be so high up if i had being left to saunter in the hall a minute or two while mr gradgrind went upstairs for the address he opened the door of the children's study and looked into that serene floor-clothed apartment which notwithstanding its bookcases and its cabinets and its variety of learned and philosophical appliances had much of the genial aspect of a room devoted to hair-cutting louisa languidly leaned upon the window looking out without looking at anything while young thomas stood sniffing revengefully at the fire adam smith and malthus two younger gradgrinds were out at lecture in custody and little jane after manufacturing a good deal of moist pipe clay on her face with slate pencil and tears had fallen asleep over vulgar fractions it's all right now louisa it's all right young thomas said mr bounderby you won't do so any more i'll answer for its being all over with father well louisa that's worth a kiss isn't it you can take one mr bounderby returned louisa when she had coldly paused and slowly walked across the room and ungraciously raised her cheek towards him with her face turned away always oh, my pet aren't you louisa said mr bounderby good-bye louisa he went his way but she stood on the same spot rubbing the cheek he had kissed with her handkerchief until it was burning red she was still doing this five minutes afterwards what are you about lou her brother sulkily remonstrated you'll rub a hole in your face you may cut the piece out with your penknife if you like tom i wouldn't cry chapter five coketown to which messrs bounderby and gradgrind now walked was a triumph of fact it had no greater taint of fancy in it than mrs gradgrind herself let us strike the keynote coketown before pursuing our tune it was a town of red brick or of brick that would have been red if the smoke and ashes had allowed it but as matters stood it was a town of unnatural red and black like the painted face of a savage it was a town of machinery and tall chimneys out of which interminable serpents of smoke trailed themselves for ever and ever and never got uncoiled it had a black canal in it and a river that ran purple with ill-smelling dye and vast piles of building full of windows where there was a rattling and a trembling all day long and where the piston of the steam-engine worked monotonously up and down like the head of an elephant in a state of melancholy madness it contained several large streets all very like one another and many small streets still more like one another inhabited by people equally like one another who went in and out at the same hours with the same sound upon the same pavements to do the same work and to whom every day was the same as yesterday and to-morrow and every year the counterpart of the last and the next these attributes of coketown were in the main inseparable from the work by which it was sustained against them were to be set off comforts of life which found their way all over the world and elegances of life which made we will not ask how much of the fine lady 
who could scarcely bear to hear the place mentioned. The rest of its features were voluntary, and they were these. You saw nothing in Coketown but what was severely workful. If the members of a religious persuasion built a chapel there, as the members of eighteen religious persuasions had done, they made it a pious warehouse of red brick, with sometimes, but this only in highly ornamented examples, a bell in a birdcage on the top of it. The solitary exception was the new church, a stuccoed edifice with a square steeple over the door, terminating in four short pinnacles like florid wooden legs. All the public inscriptions in the town were painted alike, in severe characters of black and white. The jail might have been the infirmary, the infirmary might have been the jail, the town hall might have been either or both, or anything else, for anything that appeared to the contrary in the graces of their construction. Fact, 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 everywhere in the material aspect of the town. Fact, 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 everywhere in the immaterial. The Machokum Child School was all fact, and the School of Design was all fact, and the relations between master and man were all fact, and everything was fact between the lying-in hospital and the cemetery and what you couldn't state in figures or show to be purchasable in the cheapest market and saleable in the dearest was not and never should be world without end amen a town so sacred to fact and so triumphant in its assertion of course got on well why no not quite well no dear me no Coketown did not come out of its own furnaces in all respects like gold that had stood the fire. First, the perplexing mystery of the place was, who belonged to the eighteen denominations? Because, whoever did, the labouring people did not. It was very strange to walk through the streets on a Sunday morning, and note how few of them, the barbarous jangling of bells that was driving the sick and nervous mad, called away from their own quarter, from their own close rooms, from the corners of their own streets, where they lounged listlessly, gazing at all the church and chapel going, as at a thing with which they had no manner of concern. Nor was it merely the stranger who noticed this, because there was a native organisation in Coketown itself, whose members were to be heard of in the House of Commons every session, indignantly petitioning for Acts of Parliament that should make these people religious by main force. Then came the teetotal society, who complained that these same people would get drunk, and showed in tabular statements that they did get drunk, and proved at tea-parties that no inducement, human or divine, except a medal, would induce them to forgo their custom of getting drunk. Then came the chemist and druggist, with other tabular statements, showing that when they didn't get drunk, they took opium. Then came the experienced chaplain of the jail, with more tabular statements, outdoing all the previous tabular statements, and showing that the same people would resort to low haunts, hidden from the public eye, where they heard low singing, and saw low dancing, and mayhap joined in it, and where A.B., aged twenty-four next birthday, and committed for eighteen months solitary, had himself said, not that he had ever shown himself particularly worthy of belief, his ruin began, as he was perfectly sure and confident that otherwise he would have been a tip-top moral specimen. Then came Mr. Gradgrind and Mr. Bounderby, 
the two gentlemen at this present moment walking through coketown and both eminently practical who could on occasion furnish more tabular statements derived from their own personal experience and illustrated by cases they had known and seen from which it clearly appeared in short it was the only clear thing in the case that these same people were a bad lot altogether gentlemen that do what you would for them they were never thankful for it gentlemen that they were restless gentlemen that they never knew what they wanted that they lived upon the best and bought fresh butter and insisted on mocha coffee and rejected all but prime parts of meat and yet were eternally dissatisfied and unmanageable in short it was the moral of the old nursery fable there was an old woman and what do you think she lived upon nothing but victuals and drink victuals and drink were the whole of her diet and yet this old woman would never be quiet is it possible i wonder that there was any analogy between the case of the coketown population and the case of the little gradgrinds surely none of us in our sober senses and acquainted with figures are to be told at this time of day that one of the foremost elements in the existence of the coketown working people had been for scores of years deliberately set at naught that there was any fancy in them demanding to be brought into healthy existence instead of struggling on in convulsions that exactly in the ratio as they worked longer monotonously the craving grew within them for some physical relief some relaxation encouraging good humour and good spirits and giving them a vent some recognised holiday though it were but for an honest dance to a stirring band of music some occasional light pie in which even Machokum child had no finger which craving must and would be satisfied aright or must and would inevitably go wrong until the laws of the creation were repealed this man lives at pod's end and i don't quite know pod's end said mr gradgrind which is it bounderby mr bounderby knew it was somewhere down town but knew no more respecting it so they stopped for a moment looking about almost as they did so they came running round the corner of the street at a quick pace and with a frightened look a girl whom mr gradgrind recognised hello said he stop where are you going stop girl number twenty stopped then palpitating and made him a curtsy why are you tearing about the streets said mr gradgrind in this improper manner i was i was run after sir the girl panted and i wanted to get away run after repeated mr gradgrind who would run after you the question was unexpectedly and suddenly answered for her by the colourless boy bitzer who came round the corner with such blind speed and so little anticipating a stoppage on the pavement that he brought himself up against mr gradgrind's waistcoat and rebounded into the road what do you mean boy said mr gradgrind what are you doing how dare you dash against everybody in this manner bitzer picked up his cap which the concussion had knocked off and backing and knuckling his forehead pleaded that it was an accident where's this boy running after you jupe asked mr gradgrind yes sir said the girl reluctantly no i wasn't sir cried bitzer not till she run away from me but the horse riders never mind what they say sir they're famous for it you know the horse riders are famous for never minding what they say addressing sissy it's as well known in the town as please sir as the multiplication table isn't known to the horse riders 
bitzer tried mr bounderby with this he frightened me so said the girl with his cruel faces oh cried bitzer oh aren't you one of the rest aren't you a horse-rider i never looked at her sir i asked her if she would know how to define a horse to-morrow and offered to tell her again and she ran away and i ran after her sir that she might know how to answer when she was asked you wouldn't have thought of saying such mischief if you hadn't been a horse-rider her calling seems to be pretty well known among em observed mr bounderby you'd have had the whole school peeping in a row in a week truly i think so returned his friend bitzer turn you about and take yourself home jupe stay here a moment let me hear of your running in this manner any more boy and you will hear of me through the master of the school you understand what i mean go along the boy stopped in his rapid blinking knuckled his forehead again glanced at sissy turned about and retreated now girl said mr gradgrind take this gentleman and me to your father's we are going there what have you got in that bottle you are carrying gin said mr bounderby dear no sir it's a nine oils the what cried mr bounderby the nine oils sir to rub father with then said mr bounderby with a loud short laugh what the devil do you rub your father with nine oils for it's what our people always use sir when they get any hurts in the ring replied the girl looking over her shoulder to assure herself that her pursuer was gone they bruise themselves very bad sometimes serve em right said mr bounderby for being idle she glanced up at his face with mingled astonishment and dread by george said mr bounderby when i was four or five years younger than you i had worse bruises upon me than ten oils twenty oils forty oils would have rubbed off i didn't get em by posture making but by being banged about there was no rope dancing for me i danced on the bare ground and was larruped with the rope mr gradgrind though hard enough was by no means so rough a man as mr bounderby his character was not unkind all things considered it might have been a very kind one indeed if he had only made some round mistake in the arithmetic that balanced it years ago he said in what he meant for a reassuring tone as they turned down a narrow road and this is pod's end is it jupe this is it sir and if you wouldn't mind sir this is the house she stopped at twilight at the door of a mean little public house with dim red lights in it as haggard and as shabby as if for want of custom it had itself taken to drinking and had gone the way all drunkards go and was very near the end of it it's only crossing the bar sir and up the stairs if you wouldn't mind and wait in there for a moment till i get a candle if you should hear a dog sir it's only merry legs and he only barks merry legs and nine oils eh said mr bounderby entering last with his metallic laugh pretty well this for a self-made man end of part two Part three of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal. Saturday, April the fifteenth, eighteen fifty four. Chapter four. 
the name of the public house was the pegasus's arms the pegasus's legs might have been more to the purpose but underneath the winged horse upon the signboard the pegasus's arms was inscribed in roman letters beneath that inscription again in a flowing scroll the painter had touched off the lines good malt makes good beer walk in and they'll draw it here good wine makes good brandy give us a call and you'll find it handy framed and glazed upon the wall behind the dingy little bar was another pegasus a theatrical one with real gauze let in for his wings golden stars stuck on all over him and his ethereal harness made of red silk as it had grown too dusky without to see the sign and as it had not grown light enough within to see the picture mr gradgrind and mr bounderby received no offence from these idealities they followed the girl up some steep corner stairs without meeting anyone and stopped in the dark while she went on for a candle they expected every moment to hear merrylegs give tongue but the highly trained performing dog had not barked when the girl and the candle appeared together father is not in our room sir she said with a face of great surprise if you wouldn't mind walking in i'll find him directly they walked in and sissy having set two chairs for them sped away with a quick light step it was a mean shabbily furnished room with a bed in it the white nightcap embellished with two peacock's feathers and a pigtail bolt upright in which senior dupe had that very afternoon enlivened the various performances with his chaste shakespearean quips and retorts hung upon a nail but no other portion of his wardrobe or other token of himself or his pursuits was to be seen anywhere as to merrylegs that respectable ancestor of the highly trained animal who went aboard the ark might have been accidentally shut out of it for any sign of a dog that was manifest to eye or ear in the pegasus's arms they heard the doors of rooms above opening and shutting as sissy went from one to another in quest of her father and presently they heard voices expressing surprise she came bounding down again in a great hurry opened a battered and mangy old hair trunk found it empty and looked round with her hands clasped and her face full of terror father must have gone down to the booth sir i don't know why he should go there but he must be there i'll bring him in a minute she was gone directly without her bonnet with her long dark childish hair streaming behind her what does she mean said mr gradgrind back in a minute it's more than a mile off before mr bounderby could reply a young man appeared at the door and introducing himself with the words by your leaves gentlemen walked in with his hands in his pockets his face close-shaven thin and sallow was shaded by a great quantity of dark hair brushed into a roll all round his head and parted up the centre his legs were very robust but shorter than legs of good proportion should have been his chest and back were as much too broad as his legs were too short he was dressed in a newmarket coat and tight-fitting trousers wore a shawl round his neck smelt of lamp oil straw orange peel horses provender and sawdust and looked a most remarkable sort of centaur compounded of the stable and the playhouse where the one began and the other ended nobody could have told with any precision this gentleman was mentioned in the bills of the day as mr e w b childers so justly celebrated for his daring vaulting act 
as the wild huntsman of the north american prairies in which popular performance a diminutive boy with an old face who now accompanied him assisted as his infant son being carried upside down over his father's shoulder by one foot and held by the crown of his head heels upwards in the palm of his father's hand according to the violent paternal manner in which wild huntsmen may be observed to fondle their offspring made up with curls wreaths wings white bismuth and carmine this hopeful young person soared into so pleasing a cupid as to constitute the chief delight of the maternal part of the spectators but in private where his characteristics were a precocious cutaway coat and an extremely gruff voice he became of the turf turfy by your leaves gentlemen said mr e w b childers glancing round the room it was you i believe that were wishing to see jupe it was said mr gradgrind his daughter has gone to fetch him but i can't wait therefore if you please i will leave a message for him with you you see my friend mr bounderby put in we are the kind of people who know the value of time and you are the kind of people who don't know the value of time i have not retorted mr childers after surveying him from head to foot the honour of knowing you but if you mean that you can make more money of your time than i can of mine i should judge from your appearance that you're about right and when you've made it you can keep it too i should think said cupid kidderminster store that said mr childers master kidderminster was cupid's mortal name what does he come here cheeking us for then cried master kidderminster showing a very irascible temperament if you want to cheek us pay your ochre at the doors and take it out kidderminster said mr childers raising his voice store that sir to mr gradgrind i was addressing myself to you you may or you may not be aware for perhaps you've not been much in the audience that jupe has missed his tip very often lately has what has he missed asked mr gradgrind glancing at the potent bounderby for assistance missed his tip offered at the garters four times last night and never done em once said master kidderminster missed his tip at the banners too and was loose in his pongin didn't do what he ought to do was short in his leaps and bad in his tumbling mr childers interpreted oh said mr gradgrind that is tip is it in a general way that's missing his tip mr e w b childers answered nine oils merry legs missing tips garters banners and bonging eh ejaculated bounderby with his laugh of laughs queer sort of company too for a man who has raised himself lower yourself then retorted cupid oh lord if you've raised yourself so high as all that comes to let yourself down a bit this is a very obtrusive lad said mr gradgrind turning and knitting his brows on him we'd have had a young gentleman to meet you if we'd known you were coming retorted master kidderminster nothing abashed it's a pity you don't have a bespeak being so particular you're on the tight jeff ain't you what does this unmannerly boy mean asked mr gradgrind eyeing him in a sort of desperation by tight jeff there get out get out said mr childers thrusting his young friend from the room rather in the prairie manner tight jeff or slack jeff it don't much signify it's only tight-rope and slack-rope you were going to give me a message for jupe yes i was then continued mr childers quickly my opinion is he will never receive it do you know much of him i never saw the man in my life i doubt if you ever will see him now it's pretty plain to me he's off 
do you mean that he's deserted his daughter ay i mean said mr childers with a nod that he's cut he was goosed last night he was goosed the night before last he was goosed to-day he's lately got in the way of being always goosed and he can't stand it why has he been so very much goosed asked mr gradgrind forcing the word out of himself with great solemnity and reluctance his joints are turning stiff and he's getting used up said childers he has his points as a cackler still but he can't get a living out of them a cackler bounderby repeated here we go again a speaker if the gentleman likes it better said mr e w b childers superciliously throwing the interpretation over his shoulder and accompanying it with a shake of his long hair which all shook at once now it's a remarkable fact sir that it cut that man deeper to know that his daughter knew of his being goosed than to go through with it good interrupted mr bounderby this is good gradgrind a man's so fond of his daughter that he runs away from her this is devilish good <laughs> now i tell you what young man i haven't always occupied my present station of life i know what these things are you may be astonished to hear it but my mother ran away from me e w b childers replied pointedly that he was not at all astonished to hear it very well said bounderby i was born in a ditch and my mother ran away from me do i excuse her for it no have i ever excused her for it not i what do i call her for it i call her probably the very worst woman that ever lived in the world except my drunken grandmother there's no family pride about me there's no imaginative sentimental humbug about me i call a spade a spade and i call the mother of josiah bounderby of coketown without any fear or any favour what i should call her if she'd been the mother of dick jones of wapping so with this man he's a runaway rogue and a vagabond that's what he is in english it's all the same to me what he is or what he is not whether in english or whether in french retorted mr e w b childers facing about i am telling your friend what's the fact if you don't like to hear it you can avail yourself of the open air you give it mouth enough you do but give it mouth in your own building at least remonstrated e w b with stern irony don't give it mouth in this building till you're called upon you've got some building of your own i dare say now perhaps so replied mr bounderby rattling his money and laughing then give it your mouth in your own building will you if you please said childers because this isn't a strong building and too much of you might bring it down eyeing mr bounderby from head to foot again he turned from him as from a man finally disposed of to mr gradgrind jupe sent his daughter out on an errand not an hour ago and then was seen to slip out himself with his hat over his eyes and a bundle tied up in a handkerchief under his arm she will never believe it of him but he's cut away and left her pray said mr gradgrind why will she never believe it of him because those two were one because they were never asunder because up to this time he seemed to dote upon her said childers taking a step or two to look into the empty trunk both mr childers and master kidderminster walked in a curious manner with their legs wider apart than the general run of men and with a very knowing assumption of being stiff in the knees this walk was common to all the male members of sleary's company and was understood to express that they were always on horseback poor sissy he had better have apprenticed her 
said Childers, giving his hair another shake as he looked up from the empty box. Now he leaves her without anything to take to. It's creditable to you, who have never been apprenticed, to express that opinion, returned Mr. Gradgrind approvingly. I never apprenticed. I was apprenticed when I was seven year old. Oh, indeed, said Mr. Gradgrind, rather resentfully, as having been defrauded of his good opinion. I was not aware of it being the custom to apprentice young persons to idleness, Mr. Bounderby put in with a loud laugh. No, by the Lord, Harry, nor I. A father always had it in his head, resumed Childers, feigning unconsciousness of Mr. Bounderby's existence, that she was to be taught the juice and all of education. How it got into his head, I can't say. I can only say that it never got out. He's been picking up a bit of reading for her here, and a bit of writing for her there, and a bit of ciphering for her somewhere else, these seven years. Mr. E. W. B. Childers took one of his hands out of his pockets, stroked his face and chin, and looked with a good deal of doubt and a little hope at Mr. Gradgrind. From the first he had sought to conciliate that gentleman for the sake of the deserted girl. When Sissy got into the school here, he pursued, her father was as pleased as Punch. I couldn't altogether make out why myself, as we were not stationary here, being but comers and goers anywhere. I suppose, however, he had this move in his mind. He was always half cracked, and then considered a provided for. If you should happen to have looked in tonight for the purpose of telling him that you were going to do her any little service, said Mr. Childers, stroking his face again and repeating his look, it would be very fortunate and well-timed, very fortunate and well-timed. On the contrary, returned Mr. Gradgrind, I came to tell him that her connections made her not an object for the school, and that she must not attend any more. Still, if her father really has left her without any connivance on her part, bound to be. Let me have a word with you. Upon this, Mr. Childers politely betook himself with his equestrian walk to the landing outside the door, and there stood stroking his face and softly whistling. While thus engaged, he overheard such phrases in Mr. Bounderby's voice as, No, I say no, I advise you not, I say by no means. While from Mr. Gradgrind he heard, in his much lower tone, the words, but even as an example to Louisa of what this pursuit, which has been the subject of a vulgar curiosity, leads to an ends in. Think of it, Bounderby, in that point of view. Meanwhile, the various members of Sleary's company gradually gathered together from the upper regions where they were quartered, and, from standing about, talking in low voices to one another and to Mr. Childers, gradually insinuated themselves and him into the room. There were two or three handsome young women among them, with their two or three husbands and their two or three mothers and their eight or nine little children, who did the fairy business when required. The father of one of the families was in the habit of balancing the father of another of the families on the top of a great pole. The father of a third family often made a pyramid of both those fathers, with Master Kidderminster for the apex and himself for the base. All the fathers could dance upon rolling casks, stand upon bottles, catch knives and balls, twirl hand-basins, ride upon anything, jump over everything, and stick at nothing. All the mothers could, and did, dance upon the slack-wire and the tight-rope, and perform rapid acts on bare-backed steeds. None of them were at all particular in respect of showing their legs, and one of them, alone in a Greek chariot, drove six in hand into every town they came to. They all assumed to be mighty rakish and knowing, 
they were not very tidy in their private dresses they were not at all orderly in their domestic arrangements and the combined literature of the whole company would have produced but a poor letter on any subject yet there was a remarkable gentleness and childishness about these people a special inaptitude for any kind of sharp practice and an untiring readiness to help and pity one another deserving often of as much respect and always of as much generous construction as the everyday virtues of any class of people in the world last of all appeared mr sleary a stout man as already mentioned with one fixed eye and one loose eye a voice if it can be called so like the efforts of a broken old pair of bellows a flabby surface and a muddled head which was never sober and never drunk squire said mr sleary who was troubled with asthma and whose breath came far too thick and heavy for the letter s your fervent this is a bad piece of business this is you've heard of my clown and his dog being supposed to have morris he addressed mr gradgrind who answered yes well squire he returned taking off his hat and rubbing the lining with his pocket handkerchief which he kept inside it for the purpose is it your intentions to do anything for the poor girl squire i shall have something to propose to her when she comes back said mr gradgrind glad to hear it squire not that i want to get rid of the child any more than i want to stand in her way i'm willing to take a prentice though at her age it's late my voice is a little husky squire and not easy heard by them as don't know me but if you've been chilled and heated heated and chilled chilled and heated in the ring when you were young as often as i have been your voice wouldn't have lasted out squire no more than mine i dare say not said mr gradgrind what shall it be squire while you wait shall it be ferry give it a name squire said mr sleary with hospitable ease nothing for me i thank you said mr gradgrind don't say nothing squire what doth your friend say if you haven't took your feed yet have a glass of bitters here his daughter josephine a pretty fair-haired girl of eighteen who had been tied on a horse at two years old and had made a will at twelve which she always carried about with her expressive of her dying desire to be drawn to the grave by the two piebald ponies cried father hush she's come back then came sissy jupe running into the room as she had run out of it and when she saw them all assembled and saw their looks and saw no father there she broke into a most deplorable cry and took refuge on the bosom of the most accomplished tight-rope lady herself in the family way who knelt down on the floor to nurse her and to weep over her is an infernal fame upon my soul it is said sleary oh my dear father my good kind father where are you gone you're gone to try to do me some good i know you're gone away for my sake i'm sure and how miserable and helpless you'll be without me poor poor father until you come back it was so pathetic to hear her saying many things of this kind with her face turned upward and her arms stretched out as if she were trying to stop his departing shadow and embrace it that no one spoke a word until mr bounderby growing impatient took the case in hand now good people all said he this is a wanton waste of time let the girl understand the fact let her take it from me if you like who've been run away from myself here what's your name 
your father has absconded, deserted you, and you mustn't expect to see him again as long as you live. They cared so little for plain fact, these people, and were in that advanced state of degeneracy on the subject, that instead of being impressed by the speaker's strong common sense, they took it in extraordinary dudgeon. The men muttered, shame, and the women, brute, and Sleary, in some haste, communicated the following hint, apart to Mr. Bounderby. I tell you what, squire, to speak plain to you, my opinion is that you'd better cut it thought and drop it. They're a very good-natured people, my people, but they're accustomed to be quick in their movements, and if you don't act upon my advice, I'm damned if I don't believe they'll piss you out a window. Mr. Bounderby being restrained by this mild suggestion, Mr. Gradgrind found an opening for his eminently practical exposition of the subject. "'It is of no moment,' said he, "'whether this person is to be expected back at any time or the contrary. "'He has gone away, and there is no present expectation of his return. "'That, I believe, is agreed on all hands.' "'That the greed, squire. Stick to that,' from Sleary. "'Well, then, I, who came here to inform the father of the poor girl, Jupe, "'that she could not be received at the school any more, "'in consequence of there being practical objections into which I need not enter,' to the reception there of the children of persons so employed, and prepared in these altered circumstances to make a proposal. I am willing to take charge of you, Jupe, and to educate you, and provide for you. The only condition, over and above your good behaviour, I make is that you decide now, at once, whether to accompany me or remain here. Also, that if you accompany me now, it is understood that you communicate no more with any of your friends who are here present. These observations comprise the whole of the case. At the same time, said Sleary, I must put in my word, squire, though that both sides of the banner may be equally thin. If you like the failure to be prenticed, you know the nature of the work, and you know your companions. Emma Gordon, in whose lap you are lying at, at present, would be a mother to you, and Jothfine would be a sister to you. I don't pretend to be of the angel breed myself, and I don't say but, when you miffed your tip, you'd find me cut up rough and swear an oath or two at you. But what I say, squire, is, that good-tempered or bad-tempered, I never did a hawth or injury yet, no more than swearing at him went, and that I don't expect I shall begin otherwise at my time of life with a rider. I never was much of a cackler, squire, and have fed me thee. The latter part of this speech was addressed to Mr. Gradgrind, who received it with a grave inclination of his head, and then remarked, The only observation I will make to you, Jupe, in the way of influencing your decision, is that it is highly desirable to have a sound practical education, and that even your father himself, from what I understand, appears on your behalf to have known and felt that much. The last words had a visible effect upon her, she stopped in her wild crying, a little detached herself from Emma Gordon, and turned her face full upon her patron. The whole company perceived the force of the change, and drew a long breath together, that plainly said, She will go. Be sure you know your own mind, Jupe, Mr. Gradgrind cautioned her. I say no more. Be sure you know your own mind. When father comes back, 
cried the girl, bursting into tears again after a minute's silence. How will he ever find me if I go away? You may be quite at ease, said Mr. Gradgrind calmly. He worked out the whole matter like a sum. You may be quite at ease, Jupe, on that score. In such a case, your father, I apprehend, must find out Mr. Fleary. That's my name, Squire. Not ashamed of it. Known all over England, and always pays his way. Must find out Mr. Sleary, who would then let him know where you went. I should have no power of keeping you against his wish, and he would have no difficulty at any time in finding Mr. Thomas Gradgrind of Coketown. I am well known. Well known, assented Mr. Sleary, rolling his loose eye. You're one of the thought, Squire, that keeps a preface of money out of the house. But never mind that at present. There was another silence, and then she exclaimed, sobbing with her hands before her face. Oh, give me me clothes and let me go away before I break me heart. The women sadly bestirred themselves to get the clothes together. It was soon done, for there were not many, and to pack them in a basket which had often travelled with them. Sissy sat all the time upon the ground, still sobbing and covering her eyes. Mr. Gradgrind and his friend Bounderby stood near the door, ready to take her away. Mr. Sleary stood in the middle of the room, with the male members of the company about him, exactly as he would have stood in the centre of the ring during his daughter Josephine's performance. He wanted nothing but his whip. The basket packed in silence, they brought her bonnet to her, and smoothed her disordered hair and put it on. Then they pressed about her, and bent over her in very natural attitudes, kissing and embracing her, and brought the children to take leave of her, and were a tender-hearted, simple, foolish set of women altogether. "'Now, Jupe,' said Mr. Gradgrind, "'if you are quite determined, come.' But she had to take her farewell of the male part of the company yet, and every one of them had to unfold his arms, for they all assumed the professional attitude when they found themselves near Sleary, and give her a parting kiss. Master Kidderminster accepted, in whose young nature there was an original flavour of the misanthrope, who was also known to have harboured matrimonial views, and who moodily withdrew. Mr. Sleary was reserved until the last. Opening his arms wide, he took her by both her hands, and would have sprung her up and down after the riding-master manner of congratulating young ladies on their dismounting from a rapid act. But there was no rebound in Sissy, and she only stood before him crying. "'Good-bye, me dear,' said Sleary. "'You'll make your fortune, I hope, and none of our poor folks will ever trouble you. I'll bound it. I wish your father hadn't taken his dog with him. If ail convenience to have the dog out of the bills but on second thought, he wouldn't have performed without his master, though he's as broad as his long. With that he regarded her attentively with his fixed eye, surveyed his company with the loose one, kissed her, shook his head, and handed her to Mr. Gradgrind as to a horse. There the squire, he said, sweeping her with a professional glance, as if she were being adjusted in her seat, and they'll do you justice. Good-bye, Cecilia. Goodbye, Cecilia. Goodbye, Sissy. God bless you, dear. In a variety of voices from all the room. But the riding master I had observed the bottle of the nine oils in her bosom, and he now interposed with, Leave the bottle, me dear. If large to carry, it will be of no use to you now. Give it to me. 
no no she said in another burst of tears oh no pray let me keep it for father till he comes back he will want it when he comes back he'd never thought of going away when he sent me for it i must keep it for him if you please thor be it my dear you thee how it is squire farewell for failure my last word to you is this stick to the terms of your engagement be obedient to squire and forget us but if when you're grown up and married and well off you come upon any horse riding ever don't be hard upon it don't be cross with it give it a bespeak if you can and think you might do worse people must be amused squire somehow continued sleary rendered more pursy than ever by so much talking they can't be always a working nor yet they can't be always a learning make the best of us not the worst i've got my living out of the horse riding all my life i know but i consider that i lay down the philosophy of the subject when i say to you squire make the best of us not the worst the sleary philosophy was propounded as they went downstairs and the fixed eye of philosophy and its rolling eye too soon lost the three figures and the basket out in the darkness of the street End of part three. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.